Welcome to Shades of ABA with Adrian and Tiana. And we have a lovely group of amazing doctorate women um, with us today. We have Dr. Ray Cruz, Dr. Pritchett, Dr. Shion, and Dr. Eli Rosal. Welcome, you guys. Hi, it's nice to be here. Hi, everyone. So today we'll be discussing an article written by these wonderful women titled Social Justice in the Spirit and Aim of an Applied Science of Human Behavior, Moving from Colonial to Participatory Research Practices. But first, we would like for you ladies to go ahead and introduce yourself. Let our audience know who they're listening to. Hi, I'm Tracy Sheehan. I'm a faculty member at the University of North Texas, um, where I've been for the last... 13 years. Um, I facilitate the Cultural Behavior Science Lab and I co-facilitate the Community Lab with Drs. Alaya Cruz and Pritchett. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Dr. Pritchett? Good morning. My name is Malika Pritchett and um, I'm currently at the University of Kansas. I'm an associate researcher at the Community Youth Development and Prevention Team within the KU Center for Community Health and Development. I'm also a co-facilitator of the Community Lab at the University of North Texas. And it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Olga, you just got a new position, or was that at the at the University of Kansas or Kentucky? I can't. University of Kansas, yeah. Kansas. Brand new. Brand new. Congratulations. Congra- I know that was a huge feat. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, Alicia? Um, Alicia Recruz. I am a faculty member in the anthropology department at the University of North Texas, and I am also the director of uh, women's and gender studies in the same institution. And uh, I um, coordinate, uh, facilitate the um, community lab, uh, previously social justice lab (laughs) with Dr. Alay Rosales, uh, uh, Dr. Chion and uh, Pichet. Last but not least. <laughs> Hi, I'm Shala Elia Rosales, and I am a faculty member at, in the Department of Behavior Analysis at UNT and also um, one of the co-advisors of the Community Lab, um, which is an interdisciplinary group that um, we started at UNT and actually are making plans to spread out a little bit to to work, of course, with Kansas, as well as some other universities. Amazing, amazing. Welcome, everyone. Um, So just to get started, I kind of just want to set the stage for this article um, and how this article kind of came about. Um, You guys had submitted this article, number one, through the Behavior Analysis and Practice Special Edition Series on Social Justice and Racism and really looking at behavior analysis and what can the science do to improve what people have been experiencing, um, whether that be more applied or research-based. Um, and our lovely friend, Denisha Jingles, who I think we later found out was the first Black editor any, like anywhere in behavior analysis, let alone for BAP, um, a black, black female. And she went and dug deep. I think she had emailed a couple of you. <laughs> to try to find another Black editor um, across the different journals. So um, shout out to Denisha, because I know reviewing these papers were was um, really emotional uh, for her and for that team. 
So can we just kind of start off with um, what kind of ignited your guys's um, thought to do this research, to publish this article, and particularly in the BAP special edition series? I, I guess I'll start. This is a, the manuscript that's published is a sliver of my dissertation. And I really, well, I should back up a little bit. I went to the University of North Texas for my master's degree and um, did the behavior analysis program at UNT and Shallow was my major advisor for my thesis. So this has been, and my thesis research was looking at um, an evaluation of autism clinic in our area that served historically underserved populations in the North Texas area. And so we've been constantly having questions and um, Dr. Cruz and Dr. Sheehan have been part of my journey since my master's program. So this is a long relationship. This is not a new group of, of scholars that I've had the pleasure of working with and learning from. Um, but we are constantly asking questions about inequities in particular who has access to certain resources and um, science and who doesn't. And so then I left and I went and did some clinical work and I raised some, raised some children and got them a little older and then decided I was gonna go back to get my PhD. But I specifically went back to UNT to study with Alicia Shal and Tracy. That, that was, I needed to go back to a place because I was having more difficult questions I was going to ask and I needed to have a safe group of women to be around that were Number one, going to push the push the envelope with me, but not let me. Uh, I don't know, and I'll let them. I'll let them speak from their perspective, but not let me uh, be too scared. <laughs> it was scary, but not not let me be too scared in the process. Um, so, I don't. Shall you can probably remember is probably, you know, as we're getting going with the dissertation research, maybe Tracy and Alicia can help me with our lab meetings. I don't know how how we went in this direction in particular. But we were interested in colonialism in particular, and that was one of the conversations that um, that got us going. I, am I remembering correctly? It feels like it's been <laughs> 20 years, and then it feels like it's been two months. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're remembering correctly. <laughs> I, I think one of the things about the lab is we have always worked in layers, um, and there are a lot of layers to inequities and disparities, both at the individual and the societal level. And so with the group of people that we've had the honor of working with over time, and, and in some ways when Malika goes back to her master's, um, this is probably at the turn of the century that, that a lot of this started. Um, and I even think of Alicia and I working together. I always mark it by our oldest children's ages. So it's been over 25 years um, that we've had an alliance and an alliance that for all of us has also been very personal in terms of um, how we've supported one another in our own conditions, but also how we have had a, a very crystalline focus on advocacy and, and a focus on understanding where we were and where our context is um, in terms of social justice. I, I think also I do want to say, um, again, Denisha is, she will go down in history as someone incredibly important to our fields. And, and I also think that if, if all those voices of the people in the uprising hadn't risen, 
I think that there wouldn't have been a special issue. I don't think our field would have allowed that entrance had there not been such tremendous outside societal pressures. And I don't think this article would have been published. Um, I, I think that it is solely because of the efforts that took place during that period, right after the pandemic started. So, and I think we, we always talk about um, the portal. Uh, Arundhati Roy talks about pandemics as portals and that how it's an opportunity to leave behind, um, leave behind she says the avarice, the, the dead carcasses and data banks of society move through the portal and imagine a new kind of world. And, and as Malika was finishing her dissertation, and she did not say, but I will tell you, she finished and defended her dissertation in the middle of a pandemic, which was no small feat for so many reasons, not just the logistics, but but also the forces of society. So she accomplished that. Um, and then she kept saying, the portal's open, the portal's open. And we kept pushing, even though I think everyone was tired and everyone was very afraid. Um, and and the, the thing that she had done with her dissertation research was something we all felt strongly needed to be communicated. Um, so I think I, I think that um, we feel really blessed. We feel really blessed to be at this really hard period of history and to be able, I don't know, to contribute to the labor in some small way. Yeah, I think, you know, acknowledging the time that Malika, you're right, you know, did this, because this research had to be started before the pandemic, right? So yeah. we, you guys had to be looking at this like three, four years in advance. You know, you guys have the lab, you guys are there doing the work. Boom, George Floyd hit, right? And it has caused this huge uproar of, there's a community of people who are here to support projects such as this right you have you have baba the ada task force shades had came out you know um denisha's facebook posts are just oh so powerful <laughs> you know but you had um a community of people who thus let's say you wanted to do this research you wanted to get this out there but you didn't have the white male you know power who could deny that on all levels you had other other people who were gaining their own power but also had power to push this through so number one i want to thank you ladies um for supporting malika in this work um and we the theme and word that i've constantly heard just on the you know first 20 minutes is, is scared fear and being afraid and so from, uh, you know, someone in behavior analysis and a woman of color in behavior analysis, I just want to say thank you guys for supporting Malika, um, for pushing this through, for I'm sure having many late night conversations and being like, no, keep going, keep going, keep going, you know, push that a little bit further. Um, and it's only benefited me and the larger audience. So thank you guys really for supporting her. I will. I will like to add um, also how important it is to contextualize. Um, 
to contextualize our work and in a certain way our history, right? Uh, I mean, I think we have a memory, <laughs> a historical memory in terms of putting our ideas together in, in facilitating the, the lab. And the idea of the creation of, uh, of the lab was to, to, to bring the students together and to bring different disciplines together. We were very aware that um, uh, we are in a context of urgency. I mean, because of our social, political, ideological context, we are in a situation of shift. Uh, we have to pivot many times in order to better understand, better situate ourselves in the changes, drastic changes that are going on in our in our world, in our nation, and in our our, our little region in in North Texas, and and also as professionals, I mean, we are academics, we are uh, professors. Um, and we, we wanted to figure out how, how we can establish a conversation among ourselves with our students in, in figuring out what message we want to convey. What is the role of the university? What is the role of the academia? What is, a, what is the meaning of what we do? Um, especially in, in, in an urgency context that we are living, where there is so much disparities at any level, uh, you know, gender, race, ethnicity, disability, etc. So how, how we can start building up something that not only makes sense, but also um, works in what we consider is critical, which is social justice, how to build a social justice type of paradigm by bringing these conversations um, with interdisciplinary conversations together. And of course, this is how, you know, um, a frameworks like uh, decoloniality, colonialism, postcoloniality, um, the relationship of, of uh, a knowledge, power, et cetera, et cetera, came up. And in reality, the, the, the article is a piece that somehow encapsulates in a certain way um, a, a, these discussions, the discussions that emerged in those kind of conversations. And, you know, Malaika have the magic <laughs> of putting it together and focusing on, on, on behavioral analysis the history of the discipline through the major professional journal. Um, uh, so I think that's, that's part of the beauty of, of, of this piece that can somehow embraces those conversations with the major aim of um, how to center a new paradigm on social justice whatever that means in the context, disciplinary context that we are working. I think actually Malika, you should talk about your ancestral help too, because I think I think what Alicia is talking about, like that that confluence of events and that focus, I think one thing that occurred to me really, really sharply was that 
the, the ancestral power to focus on human rights. And I guess I'm thinking of your grandfather um, at, among many others, but I think at some point it would be great to, to share some of some of how you have a long history of, of being in this space also. That's a good point. You must have you must have gotten a sharp <laughs> a sharp entrance because one of them is probably <laughs> all of them are here. <laughs> um, no, that's a really good point. So um, my mom grew up, she was born in Khartoum, Sudan. I grew up in Sudan for um, for a little while, but she was born to my grandmother, who's Scottish, and uh, was a OBGYN working in Sudan, helping with women's reproductive health and access to birth control specifically through the United Nations, and then met my grandfather, who um, was working at that time, Sudan was transitioning power from Britain or England to, um, to back to the Sudan. So he was an economist. He was trying to figure out with colonialism shifting a different direction, I guess you would say, um, how, how Sudan was going to have an economy that would be self-sustaining and that the British government wouldn't have to be part of anymore. So he was, uh, he went to Oxford university did a lot of great studying um, and then came back to the Sudan for this purpose. And he talked a lot about in his dissertation, he talked a lot about um, the really, the really difficult baggage that comes when one country conquers another and decides that it's theirs and how difficult it is for people to make those transitions, both probably logistically and the economy, but then also mentally as far as what it does to the people of that of that country. And I'm, I'm sure that could be echoed for many countries that have been colonized. But um, yeah, so his work in the United Nations was, was around that. And so through my grandparents and working through the United, working with the United Nations and my mom's kind of raising of me, human rights was never a conversation in our household that was an option to have. Do you know what I mean? It was center to every conversation we had. We were constantly trying to figure out who in the world was being lifted up, who in the world was being oppressed, and how to right the right the wrong. And the United Nations gets a lot of a lot of flack around the world by by saying they don't do anything. They're this peacekeeping organization that doesn't actually do anything. And um, I take great offense to that. I think that there's there's ways in which we can understand, and I think that scholarship is one of the ways that we can really look at things a little bit deeper. And hopefully, in the future, we can. We don't we don't have to be asking these same questions again. Do you know what I mean? Like as I was as I was writing my dissertation and, and going through this perspective, it was it was really frustrating. It was frustrating to look through Java. And I had many conversations with Shala and Tracy, especially like, why are we still doing this? This 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 is 50 years ago. And seeing Angela Davis, you know, at all these protests, I'm like, she must be so exhausted. She, she must be so tired to be doing this over and over and over again. So the urgency that Alicia is talking about was, was present because of having to, um, having to witness these, these black people being murdered in broad daylight on TV was, was horrendous. But why did it have to get to that point before behavior analysis and practice decided, let's do a special issue on this. Um, so I, I answered your question, Shala, but then I, I went a different direction. And the only other thing happens a lot. <laughs> the only other thing I'm thinking is that we were 
we were in the social justice lab when this started to this idea really started to solidify, but we really wanted to be sure that behavior analysts in particular didn't, and, and Alicia is an applied anthropologist. So we wanted to be sure that we weren't taking social justice and breaking it apart from applied. The point of it is that if we are actually in applied science, social justice is inherent in the way in which we do the thing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Do the thing. <laughs> yes. And Tracy, you helped run that lab, correct? Uh, yeah, I came in a little bit later because um, uh, I haven't been at UNT as long. Um, but as soon as the opportunity was available, um, it, it really fit well with the work that I had been doing. Um, my background is in, in both behavior analysis and in education. And I started um, outside of working in home. My first like uh, full-time position was with the public school system. Um, and so working, I think, in those environments, in addition to my own kind of background and upbringing, um, Shala reminds me a lot that my family kind of comes together around the most vulnerable, um, that, that we, we tend to, to just work together regardless of the conditions to support those who, who need support. Um, and, and so I think the the confluence of those things, in addition to my interest in systems and culture, um, kind of made it a, a natural fit um, for me. And, and Malika and I have been working together for, for many years um, in, in other capacities, and Shala and I as well, and Alicia and I too. So um, it was a, a, a good moment, I think. In, in the public health. You forgot the public health. <laughs> that, that actually is a really important part also of our paradigm and our interdisciplinarity is the focus on prevention in the system. Yeah, yeah, the focus on prevention, but also population level and, and going to scale. I think that's been um, a challenge for behavior analysts for a very long time. Um, and we, we tend to think we have um, good analyses of, of behavior environment relations. Um, and we do can we can affect change in, in really socially valid ways. Um, but we've we've really struggled in terms of when we see the systemic um, contingencies, how to move and, and to push against those um, and to, to affect change at a at a way that is is similar to how we affect change at the individual level, but also in terms of um, creating policies, um, having uh, looking at behavior in, in those conditions, um, looking at what the contingencies are in the policies and who they're supporting and who they're oppressing, where it's coercive um, and where we might be able to, to affect that change. And I think working with the community lab and, and this group in particular has really helped me to think also about some of the other um, dimensions and areas within behavior analysis that are, are trying to address similar considerations, um, but maybe in, in different ways, um, and how those um, uh, different principles, research methodologies, and so forth can, can come together um, to, to really empower um, both the community members as well as those who are, are trying to, to work in those areas. So I'm going to take it back just a little bit on a um, comment or statement that Malika made and just the fact of this is 50 years ago. Why are we still doing this? Right. Straight out the gate with your article, you guys identified three separate instances within history with the time frame in between the years of 1932 to total 1972. Each of these instances occurred in that time frame, right? Um, we have Henrietta Lack, we have the Tuskegee experiment, 
And then also there was discussion of the, the experiments and things that were done during in concentration camps. Just within that, what, that 40 year time frame, the articles that you guys started to break down and go through began like your starting point was 1968. So it's in the midst of all of the experiments and everything that just these three experiments rather that were being discussed. Was the selection of those experiments and those points in history on purpose in, in relation to the time frames that of the articles you were going to review, or is that just an incident that is coincidental or an, an event that was coincidental? That is such a good question. <laughs> what a wise question to ask. Um, I don't know. Do, do y'all have an answer? Well, I could always think of something. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think in some ways, like watching Malika's journey along the way, I think it was intentional, but partly because of lived history. And also... You know, one of the things that I always thought was beautiful that Skinner talks about in Science and Human Behavior is coming off the back of World War II and saying, the way we're doing all this isn't working. Like we need a systematic way to walk into our societies and the design of our societies. But it's also hard because it's sort of a hot mess. So so he had one one avenue. And I, I think from watching from the outside and maybe Malika, you can come back, but from watching from the outside, being acutely aware and having foundational knowledge in medicine and looking at what had happened. And also the fact that refugee status, you know, most of us share refugee status from one branch of our family or another. And and understanding things like the concentration camps and the, the the heinous crimes that occurred under those conditions, but also seeing that crime can occur underneath our noses and we don't even know that that's happening. And I think I, I have to say also that in our work with Alicia, one of the things I think that has been most important learning from applied anthropology and from Alicia is, is looking at meaning. And that's not something we easily do in behavior analysis, like looking at meaning and also this very, and I don't mean it in a very, in a superficial way, but, but the idea of participation of society in, in the work that we're doing, that, that learning about the evolution, familiarly say about applied anthropology and participatory practices, what it meant not only at a procedural level to include, but what it meant at a philosophical and life value, your choices about how you walk into anything you do. So, so I think in some ways, I'm not sure it was like, oh, we're going to relate this. But I think our context was, and Malika's context, especially from, from the work of her family, like knowing deeply about what happened in, in the medical field. But also, and, and then I'll pass the, the baton, but I want to say, first of all, when the lab started, it was a group of students that actually pushed for a formal lab in this area. 
And one of the things we started doing was at the holiday time, we would have a potluck and gift exchange, but the gift exchanges were books, plants, ideas, music. So, so, and that space, that opening, I think is really because I think Alicia came in and said that there are at a scholarly level that we could include in our behavior analytic work, there are many, they call them funds of knowledge. There, there are many funds of knowledge and all of those are important. So, so we started stretching and, and reading the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, reading, you know, Bettina Love's work, reading whoever, whoever each of us and all of us are reading different things. So we would come in and, and if you look in any of our rooms, there's stacks of books, some that we, yeah, read, like some that we want to read. Like... Yeah. But but there's this huge cross-pollination across disciplines, but also across the arts and music, you know, like I don't know, forwarding. Kendrick Lamar's new song or or whatever it was, it was, and our kids, because our kids were in contact with whole different realms, you know, or our nieces and nephews were in contact with all these realms where people were bubbling with new ideas and breaking up the way you look at things, you know, breaking up what all the tensions were and the paradoxes. So, as Malika said, we start to wander, but I wandered. But anyway, it was a beautiful question. <laughs> I, I have a better answer now. Henrietta <laughs> <laughs> Lacks and, and Tuskegee and, and telling the stories about the, um, the concentration camp victims was part of Alicia, Tracy, and Shala constantly reminding me that you have to tell these persons stories. You have to, you have to, you have to do your research and do a good job and do an honorable job, but also you need to be sure that we are not missing the humanitarian or the humanity part of the conversation is that we have to talk about these people um, and, and what they endured so that we can hopefully prevent anything even remotely like it from happening again. So I think that may be the common, the common theme is listening to people's stories. I also have um, some good news. So recently, Henrietta Lacks' family filed a lawsuit and are suing um, the medical field. Or the, I think it was the specific lab that she went to, the specific um, hospital that she went to. They're suing them um, because they haven't received any it's yeah. anything, anything. The book came out. They still hadn't received anything. I think the funds from the book, I think, um, went back to the family. But then, because when that book came out, oh, I was, I think I was in high school or something. I can't remember what year. And I was just like, you know, of course, I grew up in a, in a white suburban neighborhood. So this wasn't talked about at all. So when the book came out and Oprah put it on her show, I was just, dumbfounded but they are suing um for monetary um benefits because they had not um received anything yet and then another incident with the OBGYN the father of OBGYN um they just put up I believe it's somewhere on the east coast maybe the monument for these um 12 there were 12 women but there are four monuments 
whose bodies were just taken from them as women that is intimate right we all know you know you're going to the OBGYN you're like all right let me make sure we're all good down there (laughs) but then for that to that to be taken from you experimented on and then to never be acknowledged either until we have this paradigm shift um so I really appreciate how you guys even brought that to the forefront with behavioral and medical because they come they overlap we overlap as much as we you know we are medical science we are behavioral science but those things overlap in one so I really appreciate you guys bringing that up at the beginning of your article I was going to say that um you know when it was um I was thinking about this, um, and thank you for your question. Uh, Diana is really good. It makes us to think. <laughs> um, but in reality, those those examples that uh, um, that were brought in the article that Malaika pointed out are the fundamentals of. Uh, I mean, represent the fundamentals of our scientific paradigm. Um, our social sciences um, paradigm are built on that. I think that was the way to mark the the, the, the needed shift, the needed shift that that, that we have to uh, to get into. Um, in a certain way, those examples are pointing out to the you know fundamentals of colonialism, which is racism, patriarchy, and capitalism. Um, so uh, they do not talk about, as, as Malaika was saying, the, the story of those involved, um, the human aspect of our work, of our research, and also the world of emotions. We are in social sciences, even in humanities, we are not used to talk about emotions because it's the, the reason, right? The logic uh, that counts is, is like the, the axis of our scientific uh, enterprises, enterprise. So I think um, those examples that set up the scenario of how much we need to depart from that, because as as Malaika indicated in the article, those fundamentals that are in those early examples um, have continued <laughs> in different way through those decades of research of the type of articles and research agendas that uh, the journal, um, I mean, behavioral analysis, but we can do that. We can do this in any discipline. <laughs> We might have different uh, kind of uh, type of um, uh, trajectories, but we can identify these major axes of uh, how much the scientific Western paradigm has been directing, guiding um, the research. So I want to get into the, we talked about the framework of the article, how it came about. I'm just going to say one of my favorite parts about this article is the wording um, that you guys used. I think I said before we started recording, it is very blunt. It is very straight to the point. It is not sugarcoating. I don't see any like, like niceties 
kind of like, oh, let me bring you around to the point in this very roundabout way. It's very straightforward. Um, and I just wanted to say my favorite, my favorite quote in here is that um, we do not offer a checklist for police, a set of topographical responses for anti-racist behaviors or templates for effective programs. Um, and Tracy, you have been doing this work for a long, a long time. Um, can you just kind of speak to that quote specifically? Because what we get asked all the time, all the time, just got an email the other day. Well, can you meet with me to let me know um, what specifically we need to do? Or can you meet with me? Um, there's a major conference going on out of 37 speakers. They have zero black speakers. They have three um people of color, um, two of them being men, one of them being women. And so I probably sent the email because, you know, that's how we activate, you know, change <laughs> lately. I was like, what were you thinking? You know, like, tell me what you were thinking. And they were like, oh yeah, we know we need to do better. Can you meet with us? So we know who we need to ask next time. I was like, no, what you can do though is listen to the Shades of ABA podcast. You can come to Baba's monthly CEU. You can come to Baba's conference. You can look at who we featured. Black History Month, we did 28 days of DCBAs who weren't um, working in autism. Um, there are an immense level of resources for people to use. So getting back to my question, uh, Tracy, <laughs> can you speak to, you know, not having this article be like a checklist um, and what that what those conversations were like. Yeah, uh, it, there's a theme of conversations I think that we're all having around that time and, and continue to have in terms of the performative nature of a lot of people's sort of, um, I don't want to say motivation necessarily to do this work, but in, in terms of, of how they're approaching the work, um, in terms of what is is kind of informing the work. And the, the societal systems um, perpetuate, in addition to the contingencies, a checklist. It's lower effort, it's easier to do, um, and, and, and even in terms of, of billing practices and other sorts of things, the faster you can do something, um, the, then the, the better other conditions are, the way you can meet some other contingencies. And, and, and we are approached, often all of us, I, I, I think, you know, especially in, in my role with Behaviors for Social Responsibility and, and my leadership uh, role with the journal Behavior and Social Issues, um, we're asked a lot, how, how can we do this? Um, how can we do better? How can we work in social justice? How can we work in diverse areas? How can we do these things? And, and I think for us, it was particularly important that we said specifically that it's not a checklist, that this is a, a recursive, ongoing, lifelong um, thing that you have to do. It, it, it becomes like a worldview. It becomes a, like a, your own behavioral practice. Um, and if we are going to affect change, then it needs to be ingrained in the contingencies and the cultural practices, not just, I did this, I did this, I did this. And I think that that has been um, similar to your response when, when you're approached um, about these different things, like how, how one chapter, for example, on diversity in a book is not 
sufficient, um, that there needs to be a diversity editor. It needs to be infused throughout the book, um, that these sort of, of token um, contributions, if you will, to addressing um, what is a, a much more, I keep saying systemic concern, it, it, you, you, you can't do it that way. Um, there, there's no task analysis um, for this. And it's not just getting a person of color who acts white either. Like, like I think that is a thing um, that 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 it's it's not just that. It means you're going to need to learn to look at the world differently and be transformed. Like we're all going to be transformed. I just can you just restate that one part <laughs> that you just stated, please? It's not yes what? again. <laughs> Normally, I would have used more colorful language, as all my lovely colleagues know, <laughs> and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. I'm do telling it. you. Go there. <laughs> Say that again, though, I think please. Now I'm too embarrassed, but I think it's. <laughs> I, I I think it's it's not just having a person of color who behaves as a white mm-hmm. person. I think that is the expectation sometimes that we're just going to bring in someone who topographically looks different from, from the other group. And then satisfy, like Tracy Mm -hmm. said, we'll say, check, (laughs) we have people who have color and, and, and move on. It's not that because when we come in, we're going to come in with different ways of being, we're going to come in and stretch and bring our, are everything. And that is going to cause disruption and it's going to cause discomfort and it's going to cause, I I love one of the things in the end of the article about third ways, it's going to cause us to search for third ways so we can build coherence and love. Because although we were in the words and, and, and that is I think in large part because of Malika's focus that the, the words are straight, they're clear, but they are also loving and tender. Our, our way is, is to say it, to, to look for what we are seeing as an honest, as a, as a truth um, and to expand, expand how we look at everything but we need love and, and we need it to be love for everyone, not, not just love for a few people. And we need not to isolate love from, from our work. And I think that is something that is, I think, bothersome as our science develops is to compartmentalize. I think Alicia said something about emotions that to compartmentalize the emotional part of our being, the spiritual part of our being, and to separate it from our science, that that the part of bringing in everyone, all of us, is that it expands how we look at, at our efforts and our labor. And I think in our fields, I agree, we have not looked at emotion, but but in a way, we have also looked at emotion, but they're the emotions of a dominant space, colonial way of being. Fear and aggression are all over our journals. Like those are emotions. Love and tenderness are not in our journals. And, and those are perhaps more important and more viable for the survival of our species, for our, I would say, spiritual development. And, and those are things that we will all bring in when we're part of it. 
And I don't even know if that's the right way to look at it, because that also implies that we want to enter that space. And, and sometimes I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm not sure that maybe it should be create new spaces and welcome, um, which is probably another conversation. I also, I, I, of course, I'm not going to disagree with any of, any of these folks on this call in this moment, but I, I also would like to say that this type of labor, this type of research is very, is very difficult. It is, it is emotionally draining. I have, and we all have, especially in the creation of this manuscript, under the conditions that we had to create it, um, cry. We're crying. We're we're shedding tears. We're we're walking away. We're emotional. We're coming right back. And I think for anyone that is really interested in doing this type of work, if you're not ready for the emotional labor and you're not ready to make love go through the entire part of the journey, then then it's going to be performative and you're going to create a checklist and you're going to tap out and you're not going to come back to the manuscript. You know what I mean? And I think Shala, Alicia, Tracy, and I have gotten into very tense conversations individually, collectively, and use I use very colorful language um, when I'm when I'm working really hard on a very important topic. And it doesn't look great sometimes. And, and sometimes we're hanging up the phone or we're walking away from a meeting or walking across campus and 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 it's so intense. But if anybody were from the outside looking in, they would say, Malika's disagreeing with her dissertation committee or something like that. And it's, it's, we all know, and I'm, I don't know, I'm struggling to articulate this, this phenomena, but we all know how important this work is. And so it doesn't look great all the time. And it doesn't, and I think that's the problem with our field right now. I think they want to do the social justice, whatever it is. I'm not sure, DEI, whatever, all these words. I don't know what they mean anymore, but I think that that is why that's what's going to cause our field to kind of stall out is that everybody wants this effort to be done, but they don't want it to look messy and confusing and they don't want to come back. They just want to have it all done. DEI, we're done. We have a position statement. Let's move on. It's just impossible to do it that way. I think that's been one of the strengths of, of having the lab and, and the community that we have too, though, is that it, it's hard to do this work in isolation. Um, for, for many ways, you've got to be part of a community of, of not just a community that that pushes you to think in different ways, which is is uncomfortable. It's it's hard um, to to do that, but also one that's that's going to lift you up, um, one that's going to be there when you need to rest, um, one that where you're able to to support each other if someone needs to pull back for a minute, that someone else can push in. And and I think that that's one of the real advantages of this and, and some other communities that I do this work in um, is is that there's there's support. Um, there's there's that pushing um, to help you grow, but then there's also the support to keep you going under conditions that are, are difficult to work under. And so you all um, kind of took the approach of, which I think I like, is analyzing the research that's already out there, you know, so, um, and looking at the Belmont report and utilizing that and operational definitions and things like that. I love that. Um, and so for, for our audience, can we just kind of go over really quick what, what that research was and what you guys looked at, looked at and the, the indicators based off of the 
the Belmont report? Yeah, so the three indicators based off the Belmont report are um, respect for persons, beneficence, and justice. And those indicators are indicators that um, were put in place because of the outcry that happened right after the Tuskegee syphilis experiment um, really came to the public forefront. Once the public realized what had been happening for 40 years under the watch of the United States government, <laughs> um, you know, the Belmont Report is created after the National Commission was convened. And I think the Belmont Report is, first of all, back up. The Belmont Report, when you Google it, is a 20-page document that you'll usually find. There's two appendices that are over 100 pages. Uh, and the, so the Belmont Report, when you stack it, Charlotte took a picture of me one time because I, I marched to the library at, at UNT and I said, I need the Belmont Report. And... Um, the librarian helped me or the library, the library assistant helped me and produce this thin report that's the 20 pages that you can find online. And, and I said, no, there's more. And so I'm, and, and she's saying, no, there's not. And I said, yes, there is. And so I'm in the library arguing <laughs> and, and insisting because I couldn't find it readily. And I also am old school and I need paper to read. I, reading online is just, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do it very well, but anyway, Listen, I'm a paper and pen girl. I still do my planners. It's like a thing. <laughs> so I march into the library and help her help me. So we're working together to, to grab this Belmont report. And next to the Belmont report, um, you have these two appendices, but there was so much more that came out of the National Commission. There's an entire report on the rights of the fetus. The rights of a fetus has huge number of pages with where we're working on this, the rights of prisoners. And so these are big, big conversations. And us, us looking at the bare minimum, the minimum principles, respect for persons, beneficence, and justice, just by looking at the bare minimum principles for how you should engage participants that are part of biomedical or behavioral research um, was, it was critical, but it's also such a minimum standard. And as far as just reflecting on the journals, that's probably just my interest. I've, I'm a historian by, by hobby, and I like to look back at permanent products. I really genuinely enjoy permanent products and seeing what's been done, what's been written, and, and using that as a gauge for where we go in the future. Um, did that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Please help me get so distracted. And I want to add something about the Belmont, too, that was so important about it. And, and I think was part of the, the feeling that it was at the core of starting the analysis is the Belmont report not only was a response to, to the injustices, but they also chose to do it in a very different way. They chose to have everything transparent. They chose to televise the public proceedings and they chose to use people from the communities that had been excluded, that had been experimented upon. It was a really important shift in the way it, it as Malika said, it, it, it wasn't enough. And I think that is also why Malika, who was obsessed with the Fawcett article on, on um, community values and research, and it's so beautiful, she ended up at Kansas in the project that Steve Fawcett, I think, started, um, but that 
that that is the first place I remember seeing we should not engage in colonial practices was in that article. And so that was kind of the second part of the analytical criteria was to look at what Fawcett recommended in terms of how we should approach research. Um, and, and that that also started to dovetail with what we were learning from Alicia in applied anthropology about participatory practices, because Fawcett and his group also work with anthropologists. Good discipline. <laughs> but but that that synthesis there was really important for the criteria that Malika had had decided to choose to do the analysis of, of the flagship journal. And Alicia, you probably don't remember this, but I was so proud of myself because Fawcett had said we shouldn't engage in colonial research uh, relationships with participants. And I, I, in our lab, the way that we generate ideas is we present our ideas. I was presenting my dissertation. I was starting to go down this road and I was so proud. And I walked in and did this presentation on colonialism and looking at that frame in our science. And Alicia watched and listened and we're sitting in lab and she says, that's not the right word, Malika. It's not colonialism. It's coloniality. And, and that shift was pivotal. And Alicia describes this distinction so much better. So Alicia, I'll let you do it. But there is a, there is a very, very fundamental distinction between coloniality, decolonization, um, decoloniality. And um, there's a, there's a really cool article, I think it's Yang and Tuck are the authors, decolonization is not a metaphor. And that was a fundamental article to read. So we have to be careful with all these hashtag decolonize ABA because they're they're fundamentally incorrect use of the word decolonize. Um, and Alicia, I'll let you help me. Yeah, there's a, um, a trend in um... I would say in anthropology, social sciences in general, is called modernity coloniality. And there are mainly Latino, Latino scholars that, uh, that led it. Um, Quijano, Dussel, uh, Mignolo is an Argentinian, Walter Mignolo. So coloniality in itself is the epistemological kind of the major premises upon which colonialism um, it became a major force, uh, power, and and colonial uh, expansion in the in the Latin American colonial world, and the coloniality uh, uh, coloniality is based upon three major principles, integrated among each other, which is racism, capitalism, and patriarchy. So those three fundamentals interconnected, articulated among each other are the fundamentals of any type of colonial type of uh, power. And, uh, and this is the, the basis on how the Spanish empire uh, somehow rooted um, the colonial um, the colonial history and trajectory in Latin America. So coloniality is very important because these these fundamentals um, are still present. This is why we call coloniality of power. They are still present in our world. Uh, they are still present among those 
who had been historically through generations experiencing the life, understanding the world upon each this kind of uh, epistemology in such a way that we perpetuate it without even knowing it. So we perpetuate, we use them in the way we believe, in the way we understand the world, in the way we do research, in the way we understand our disciplines. So this is how it's so pernicious, huh? the coloniality of power, because it is so rooted. You need to have a kind of very deep, critical kind of the uh, <laughs> construction of what we do. And I think one of the purposes of the article is that, is to do that critical analysis to lay down, lay down what has been going on and what needs to be identified and transformed if we want to reach uh, that social justice that, uh, that uh, we are here for. I also think it speaks to the colonization of our language, you know, and having decolonization versus, is it coloniality? Am I saying that right? Coloniality, yeah. Coloniality. Um, I just had, I just saw on Facebook, not Instagram or something, somebody had trademarked um, decolonizing therapeutic. I think that's what it is. I'm going to have to look it up. But um, it was, as you guys are saying this, I'm like, I think they trademarked the wrong word. Therapeutic colonization. That's what it is. But even the idea of trademarking it is hilarious. I'm sorry. <laughs> Like and that is colonizing. It's, it's it's so colonial. <laughs> like it's colonial. It. Yeah. You know, and I think these these discussions, these conversations are so important. Um, I mean, we just have a, a, a Nobel Prize in literature uh, that comes from this contest, had been devoting three, four decades of his life to talk about this, the effects of colonization and decolonization in Africa. To give our listeners just a, a think piece so that they can kind of reflect on their own everyday lives, could you guys give us, provide us with examples? Not, it does not have to be an extensive list, but just quick little um, areas in which we as practitioners and may unintentionally um, practice coloniality, um, whether it is within research or within just our like practice as um, a clinician, just give, give our listeners just quick little tidbits so that they can also begin to kind of think about their own behaviors there. I think the first thing they need to understand is that we're part of this system it's a systems problem, and it's a system that um, at the human level perpetuates inequities and perpetuates um, a social stratification. Some are better. This, these, these groups of persons are better. These groups of persons are, are, are not as good. And so by creating these false realities as far as who is better and who is, who is lesser in society... Those things are sneaky and they get reinforced and they get they, they sneak into the daily lives that that we live. And um, 
And Dr. Ruha Benjamin's work has been pivotal to my understanding of how racism sneaks into different places. She specifically talks about the uh, the medical sciences and now is transitioning to technology and how technology is inherently racist in very sneaky and suspicious ways. And we don't we don't necessarily see it unless we're we've got our lenses is, is the way that she she talks about it. And if you don't have your lenses adjusted, then it maybe is something that you perpetuate. White supremacy ideals and white supremacy um, rules as far as how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in society sneaks up all the time. And one of the examples that I just, I can't not do is this idea that everything needs to happen in a specific timely manner. Time is always this rub for me as a black woman, especially because um, this idea that you need to be in a specific place at a specific time reinforces this white supremacy idea that um, everything needs to be rigid and occur in a specific timely fashion. And, and being late causes stress and anxiety. And I, I am going to show up to spaces a little bit late because I, as a black woman, am constantly caring for a lot of people in my world. Do you know what I mean? But if you walk into a meeting, and you say, I'm late, I'm sorry, my children, my grandmother, I'm caring for all of these people. And, my neighbor, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm just constantly keeping all of these things in harmony and I show up to your meeting. Well, then I get, I get talked about or looked at as if, Oh, she's always blaming her kids. I almost, I almost never talk about my children in professional context because I do not want that label or that assumption to be perpetuated that I, as a woman with children can be looked at unfavorably. No, no, you're bringing up a, a no, I understand. many women go through. Many women go through. Yes, yeah, I completely understand that area and that piece. So there's no need to apologize or even run away from it because I think that it that fear or that thought process is kind of ingrained into us. To, we can't use our children or we can't use these different aspects within our life to provide a reasoning and not an excuse but a reasoning as to you know to explain what was what has happened or what events occurred to get me to this position as to why you may be viewing this situation as unfavorable in your eyes when really these are just events that occurred absolutely i i i get as a black woman that's lighter skinned i have way more privileges and way more access in and out of the black community, in and out of white communities or white passing communities, just because my skin is lighter. That's white supremacy in action. It happens all the time. Um, it's just the fact that we don't acknowledge that power of privilege when we're moving in and out of spaces. And we don't do it enough, especially black women don't say it enough to other black women. Like, I do acknowledge that my fair skin gives me power and privilege and access to places that my dark, my darker complexed sisters don't get access to. I recognize that, but it's also very paralyzing because I'm not sure how to shift often. And I don't know if I'm shifting enough. Honestly, just addressing it and saying, I've never, this is the first time I've had a black woman say to me who is lighter skinned that I recognize my own privilege. Right. So just like we're saying in, in this research and this conversation that we're having, Number one, the, the first step is acknowledgement. 
I think, and and we see it in the ABA world, right? So just to say something relatable to our audience, um, we see behavior analysts, you know, coming out with different certifications for progressive ABA or, you know, for this ABA reform. And, and the argument is that, well, I'm not, you know, engaging in abuse. I'm engaging in ethical practices. But we're not acknowledging that there are some BCBAs out there, those who, you know, want ABA reform, those who think ABA is perfectly fine. And, you know, we we aren't acknowledging that. But to bring that back to um, what we're talking about right now, the first step is acknowledgement that harm has been done, right? Or acknowledgement that you have a certain set of privilege that me being darker skinned um, will not have, or my hair isn't as smooth and I got to use products for my baby hair where you walk out of the, the shower, you know, perfectly fine, right? Um, I think the first step is acknowledgement of, of that privilege, but then also community and support. You know, I recognize that I may not have those privileges and Malika does, but how do I support her in this uncomfortable space to even feel comfortable to acknowledge that privilege and to know how far do I push or in what scenarios, meetings, things, X, Y, and Z do do I push? And I think it also comes down to, I talk about this with Dr. Bell, um, Dr. Marlisha Bell, love her um, all the time, is um, there was a scenario where she got paid for a conference speaking session and I did not. She is lighter skinned. I am not. She did not know of this because we weren't, I, I didn't express this. We weren't talking, right, Shala? We were not talking. And now we talk. We talk about every speaking engagement. We talk about our finances. We talk, we disclose our salaries. We disclose all of those things because of the privilege that can come up with, you know, Dr. Bell being lighter skinned versus myself. And was that the reason? I don't know. But we were two black women and that was the only only difference, you know. So I appreciate you, Malika, for even bringing that up and, and tell me how I can support you more in, in that conversation too, you know. And that's that's how white supremacy shows up. And and um, that's one of the ways. There's there's so many ways. It happens all the time. And yes, it seeps into our clinics. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You can't walk into your autism clinic and say racism doesn't happen here. It's foolish to think that the social political context of the world we live in doesn't seep into every every environment we walk into. I want to make a point just about like the clinics. Um, so it's really funny watching people like we're behavior analysts. We do a lot of watching, like just doing some analysis, intentional or not. And I work at a clinic where we have a, well, I've been transferred because I'm doing a whole new thing in this company, but I was at a clinic where we had a lot of littles, like two, not even yet two, I'll say 20 months to the oldest being three and a half years old. Okay. Lots of littles. My, I, my heart was filled. Um, we eventually got a, a four-year-old and this four-year-old, lots of language, right? Um, we had a two and a half-year-old, a lot of like 
great language. And it was always very interesting watching everyone's to state that both of these individuals are African-American. Everyone's expectation and interactions with these two African-American children who have a lot of language was always interesting because they then also forgot their age. They had these expectations or or just very um or just very dramatic, the, the therapists or the people interacting could be very dramatic about their behaviors. And, oh, they're doing this and it's all this and dramatic, dramatic. And it's like, no, I mean, they're two and a half and four. Like These things are typical for two and a half and four-year-olds. But then you're also forgetting because they have this language developed that they're their age. But it's like the two and a half-year-old speaks like he's like five, five, six years old, you know? So it's like, you have all of this language and these expectations based off of your own experiences or your own expectations, whether it is because of your own, you know, culture, ethnicity. But it, it's always very interesting to watch how those dynamics occur when you then have individuals who are not of color but still may have the same um, skill levels and everything. And those expectations kind of change within um, people that are working with them. So um, that's just what kind of cued into me when you even brought in the clinic aspect. I'm like, well, that's so in your, oh, go ahead. I was just, I was thinking it, that's a conversation that we've been having over a long time. And Shala has a really nice talk that she does where um, I think it was St. Louis um, looking at, went to St. Louis, so yeah, this is where I get my bravery. Shala had the the uh, I won't use the I won't use the colorful language at this point. Shala had the the gusto to go to a talk in St. Louis virtually and in person. She would have done it either way. I can't remember because this is something that she's put in her PowerPoint slides very often and mapped out where the autism clinics were in St. Louis. And Tracy's from St. Louis area, so so this is you know near near to her um, her home as well. And so I watched them have this conversation about St. Louis. I have very little context, um, but they were they were Shala mapped where these these clinics were. And Shala, I'll let you pick up from here about the disparities, even where autism clinics are even located, where these walls go up. So the talk was, what does intervention look like in Ferguson? And Tracy helped me. And, and it was because of Michael Brown and because of what happened and looking at what happened, how he was murdered, looking at the literal divide in that region, which both Tracy and I grew up in that area and, and, and seeing how there were such extreme disparities. And, and actually, Wash, you came out with a study last year, it was in pediatrics, that the whole thing was dedicated to structural racism and the differences which in diagnosis, but the differences also in treatment onset, hours of treatment and types of treatment. So, and then the next layer is what Tiana was talking about, like, and it's in the interactions. And, and that is documented by our colleagues in other disciplines also looking at how bias comes in. I, I guess I, I do want to say something back to your, your original question, like what's something people can do. I, I think one thing that I thought that we 
said in the article and that Malaika was very clear about was, you know, we're, we're also criticizing ourselves, like the critical analysis, because we are part of the system. We fuck up just as much as anybody else does. There you go. (laughs) So, but that, but that we need a community to help us learn all these things, to learn from Ruha Benjamin, to learn from, you know, Alice Walker's work and womanism, to learn about all the things that are going on and, and to be in a community where you can learn about power differences, where you can learn to reflect on your own behavior, where you can prompt other people. You know, I think about, we had a screaming match in lab several times for different reasons. Um, and, and it was this particular one was around an issue about abolition. And it was before the pandemic, before the uprisings. And, and this student was so brave yelling at me. And I was feeling strongly about, and partly because of my own history um, with my family in Iran, I was feeling strongly about it. And, and, and I was wrong. I mean, I, my, my new way of looking at it is I, the more I learned, the more I feel like what was being said and what was being shown to me, I was not ready to see. And then with everything happening, I realized, oh, and, and it's a complete flip. I could point to any one of the four of us and say, we've all had complete flips in different ways because of wanting to be open and wanting to transform that, that wanting to be part of accelerating forward. So I I think one of the difficulties is, is being in that space, but you know what, we all leave that space and then we come back, you know. We had a conversation like that about the, the white fragility book. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We we get to lab and there's this, this, Robin DeAngelo has written this book, White Fragility, and we're having conversations about this and really meaningful conversations. And I have to give a shout out to my husband. He's also a behavior analyst and um, his lived experience flips me on a daily basis. He grew up in um, Compton, California in the 80s. And my, my in-laws still live in Compton when I go see them. I'm, he's, he's, they're in the same house that they bought in the early 60s. And they refuse to leave that community and they've, they've ridden, ridden the wave all these years, but they were, they lived in Watts before this. So they went moving from Watts to Compton um, in the sixties was, was huge. Um, anyway, so, so one of the flips that often happens, and I think that this work doesn't happen in isolation, that's a common theme, but then also when, when we're super proud and we march into a room with a book and we've got this idea and someone looks, especially my husband, I said, look, I found this book. It's called White Fragility. And this on the other, he said, that sounds like a white person wrote it. <laughs> and I was like, yep. And then I was reading Bettina Love's work, Dr. Bettina Love, um, and said that uh, whiteness is not fragile. Whiteness is, is, is not, this is not what we're looking at. So the flips happen in so many different ways. And it can come from a J. Cole song that we hear. It can come from a conversation we have with a stranger. Um, Shalit's had Shalit, Tracy, and Alicia have been like, I had a conversation with an Uber driver and on the way to the airport to this conference. And now my now we need to look at this differently. And they're marching into lab with these things. And I'm like, this is hard as a learner, right? Can you imagine me as a student trying to trying to 
to shift all the or having to shift all the time, but it's also good and it's important. And I think that's, you know, you guys were the concept of the research you were doing in St. Louis or the talk you did in St. Louis um, and the disparities. I see that all, all the time. I'm in Detroit. So um, the Wayne County Medicaid just put out a RFP. All of the locations that people wanted to put up because they made it mandatory that you had to have a center um, in Wayne County. They chose all the suburban areas. Of Wayne, of Wayne County and the company that I work for is the only company in Detroit proper. Um, so you see it happening all the time because that's where they're comfortable. But those the people that need the, the help the most, the services are not going to be able to reach out, you know, 30 minutes away or 25 minutes away, even though it's in Wayne County. And that's what you guys were getting in this article to do community participatory research. Ask the community, what do you need? We are behavior analysts. We can do research on anything, you know, and we do some damn good research, right? And, but if all that we need to apply is to that community, we just need to ask them, what, what do you want us to fix? What do you want solutions and answers to? Instead of, as you guys say in this article, the resource, the researchers putting the question on the community, right? Well, I want to fix this. This is what I'm experiencing as a barrier. So I want to provide that solution to you guys. Like how authoritative is just that concept, right? You guys took 12, 12 articles across, you know, I think it was 1968 to 2018. So a, a large variety, what, one of the things that I noticed is that every editor was a white man um, and there was one white woman. So that was very like blatant, um, but looked at how they scored with these indicators in the Belmont report and they scored poorly, horribly. As these social issues and experiments that experiments such as the Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks, the Jewish concentration camps and Many of the other ones that just weren't put into this article were happening. So we were having that same history of what we kind of experienced with, um, I mean, outside of 2020, Black men getting murdered by police, but something about George Floyd's murder in the middle of the pandemic, when I'm sure everyone had, you know, this capacity to listen, you know, we weren't doing anything. Um comes up and then you see this this paradigm shift of the BAP article and this the what did you say that this is the moment and you guys had to really seize this moment to do this work um and I I just want to I hope you know that those that do view this article in a great light as it is you know those that do not do your own work on your own bias that's probably coming up for you as you guys are reading this article. The article is genius, period. Like you guys did a fantastic job of looking and analyzing how behavior analysis has contributed to this in a very systematic way, you know, and looking at, do we disclose our consent? Do we disclose the demographics, you know? Um, Jabba had just put out an article talking about how no one has been posting their demographics in their article, you know, but why is that not a mandatory policy? You know, there's a huge disparity 
of of research being done in white communities versus marginalized communities with marginalized students and kids and adults and systems. But we are behavior analysis who can cure the world, but we're only curing a certain subset of our population. You know, if we see something as a disparity and we see something is is not right, instead of making an article about it, a special edition series about it, what are your policies? How are your policies contributing to this very systematic racist ideology um, and not contributing to community participation research? And who we're looking at increasing things for and who we're looking at decreasing things for. I, I, I think that was something sort of suggested that we should look at. But if it falls into people with disabilities and people of color are all the decreasing and non-captive other people are all the increasing, then I think that should tell us something. That should be a marker to us about about how we're viewing behavior change for different groups of people and, and what voice they have in the process. And another thing that we didn't get a chance to it would, it would have been a, probably another three years of data analysis. <laughs> we didn't get a chance to talk about, but we've had ongoing conversations is you either do or don't list the race and ethnicity and the religion of this person, all these types of demo, sex, gender, all these types of demographic indicators. You either do or don't list them. But when you do list them, I'm also curious, why, why are you saying the race and ethnicity in one context, but not another? Why are we toggling on and off? Um, and then sitting in the library and, and scoring all of these articles and reading them over and over again and um, getting excited when race and ethnicity was finally, oh good, finally, one of these articles, but you know, it's a needle in a haystack. They list the race and ethnicity of the participant and I'm excited. And then the audacity for Fisher et al to, to name their participants Ike and Tina Two black participants, super excited, and then they have the audacity to use Ike and Tina as a as the pseudonyms for these. So, so the next layer is okay. So, how do we how do we assign these participant pseudonyms? How do we decide what their pseudonym is going to be? Who's deciding this? And um, racism sneaks in in very sneaky ways. That is Ike and Tina. Like I can see, and somebody was like, "Oh my God, yes!" And the other person reading that, like, how many AEs read the article? You know, the editor in chief reads the article, the reviewers read the article, everybody. You know, if it was a dissertation, their dissertation committee is reading the article. No one thought that that was a problem. Not a single person, until somebody you have a black person read, and how triggering is that how triggering is it to sometimes read some of these articles with these god awful associations and stereotypes and just the naming of the participants like you couldn't have said brandon megan mark megan donovan alicia donovan karen Karen, Karen, I'm gonna name all my all my white females. Are gonna be Karen, but 
but my one of the things that I I try to bring awareness to when I am doing um like uh, pseudonames is I all my pseudonames are of black individuals that have been killed by police, so that it is in one breath it can be triggering for black individuals to read that right. But the larger my larger purpose is that the white individuals or the non-black individuals reading my article, you, this is constantly on your mind, right? And this is it said. Um, one of the things in Dr. Bella's research, her consent research, all of the last names are of Black men who were killed by police. If you read that, um, she did last names to not make the first names triggering, which I've gotten feedback. And she's like, you need to stop doing that. I'm not going to stop doing that. But, you know, just to, you know, bring awareness. And so let's look at pseudonames in that context. You know, how are we trying to bring awareness to other issues? You know, whether that be the Me Too movement whether that be systemic racism, whether that be hunger or poverty, um, how do we go about just very, just like racism very sneakily sneaks in, how can we sneakily bring in social justice? You well, know, and put that back. What name they would like to be called in this research. Or ask they're them able what to name they would be <laughs> What would you like to be called? Pick your own pseudonym. What a novel idea. Can you imagine? We started doing that a couple of years ago. We, we actually, when Maleka was writing, we found an article about participants choosing their own names. And it is the most joyous process. Like the kids saying, I'm shining star, you know, or whatever, one of them was captain something like they, and the parents too, choosing their own names. So since that time for all the theses that we've done, um, you know, and the few publications that we've had that are research, that they are they are the participants choosing their names and it's such a like I, I don't know there's something about it that is just really not only welcoming but it's like we're in it together and they are they are I, it's joyful I, I can't think of any other word than that for the names that they have picked um it's really nice Discussion. Come back to Tiana's question, um, because I think that one thing people can do is just to assume it's always there, that that we are part of the contingencies that have, have shaped our language, our behavior, our science. Um, the minute that you pick up an assessment, the minute that you walk into the door, the minute that you choose a, a target behavior, the, the minute that you start doing an observation, it's there. And, and, and so I think if there's one thing that, that people can do is to constantly be aware of that, question it, think about it, revamp it, pull back and, and, and ask questions and listen. Um, it, it, that, that, that I think is, is if, if not part of the solution, a, a good step toward getting there. So we wanted to go ahead and say thank you guys. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I'm going to just refer to the title of the article again. Social justice is a spirit and aim of an applied science of human behavior. Moving from colonial, moving from colonial to participatory research practices. If you haven't taken the time to read this article, listeners, you should do so. If you find yourselves saying, no, there is no issues, you need to go ahead and do some self-reflection, um, whether it is within research that you're completing, whether it is in your um, clinical practices, 
really dive deep into into those constructs and the considerations that you make on a day to day. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I know I'm sure Adrian has. Uh, and just any final thoughts? I'll ask for any final thoughts from you guys. Um, my final thought is that I hope I hope researchers are motivated to um, to continue this this research line. Of course, I'm I'm going to continue it. This is my life work, but I would really like for more behavior analysts to to have these types of discussions and and to advance this type of research and uh, to keep the keep the lineage going in the right direction is what I would hope. Amazing. Thank you guys so much. We will um, attach everyone's LinkedIn, website, articles, whatever you know you want our audience to have as resources and things like that. We will attach it for you guys. But thank you all so much for coming on Shades of ABA and we will see you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you.